3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to late 30 a.m. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. We're just talking about uh, breaking in new binders and how it's good to wear them on a juicy day. Get their juices up, you know, apple yep. juice, pineapple juice, Pi- fruit juice. Hey, hey, ma'am, we can have Warm non-fructose juice. juices. <laughs> um, right now, it's, uh, yeah, it is Thursday, the 16th of February. Um, my time flies when the year is already so full of crises. Um, how are we doing this week? People can't hear nods on the uh, True. Radio. You know, I'm not having the best week, but, uh, you know, every day is a different juice that I can consume. <laughs> every day is a different flavor. Yeah. And yeah. You, I, I, I just, juice. Yeah. yeah. I don't have to be, like, super happy. I can just focus on trying to be well. That is true. Mm. That is mm. very true. Yeah. Leela, what about you? Yeah. Well, uh, I've avoided personal crisis. This week. Mm-hmm. Woohoo. Yeah. Love How that. What is that? <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> uh, apart from being a little bit sleepy and, <clears throat> well, I actually started swimming this week. Yay. Uh, and that has made me feel just so great, but also so sore and awful. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it really is like a full body exercise. Like you don't realize how many different muscles you have until you do like a proper lap swim for the first time in a very long time and then you're like wow yeah there i used i used parts of my body i didn't know existed yeah, yeah. i mean i think new muscles have been activated yeah absolutely um yeah should i say how i am how are you doing uh i'm sweaty um i've been enjoying riding my bike um and yeah, I don't know. That's pretty much that's pretty much it. I'm just trying to like get my little bit of joy out of trying to learn how to commute in the fastest way possible while also like not being a jerk to other cyclists or motorists. And uh, let me tell you, folks, it's hard. Uh, if you see me out there on the streets and I am behaving badly, please just uh, kindly look the other way. You probably, you probably don't know what I look like, but you know what? Anyway. We have a big show for you yes. this week, as usual. Um, some really important conversations and uh, touching on some things that we've covered last year and that we're coming back to. So, Inez, do you want to kick us off? Yes, we will be joined by, again, by Dr. Riz Farthing, who's a policy worker who focuses on children's rights around technology and disadvantage. She's the director of children's policy at Reset Tech and has worked in international think tanks and held posts at Oxford and RMIT. She joins us today for an update to our December interview following the announcement that the e-safety commissioner has rejected the online safety codes that were drafted by tech companies. So tune in to what that means. Yeah, I'm interested to, to hear how that goes because the, the conversation around the e-safety commissioner really ebbs and flows. And I think uh, it's hard for people who are outside of concertedly following that space to keep up to date with what's actually happening and what the changes are. Um, 
So after that, we're going to be joined by Frederica Jensen, who's the advocacy manager at Valid, the Victorian Advocacy League for Individuals with Disability. And Frederica joins us to discuss this week's Disability Royal Commission hearing number 32, revisiting service providers, as well as to revisit some serious concerns about disability accommodation that were raised earlier this year via the NDIS Quality and Safeguard Commission's own motion inquiry into aspects of supported accommodation in the NDIS, which revealed over 7,000 serious incidents in these accommodation providers. And that is you know, I feel like we need to keep raising the profile of that concern because I think mainstream media really just uh, acknowledged that and then moved on. And then we will be joined by Diego Vasquez, a.k.a. Slippy Main, who is a visual artist and musician from Melbourne Nam and began making music in 2016. Diego's love for writing, poetry, music, video games and friends runs deep. Visual art has always been a part of Diego's practice and stems from an early obsession with cartoons. This visual culture feeds directly into his music, and today we will be chatting music, creative process, how he made a concept album, and of course, all things love. I love that. I think um, I, we were talking about this, I think last week or the week before, um, about how nice it is to have like creative practitioners come in and tell us about the work that they're doing, because it's such a nice sort of... Uh, uplift compared to a lot of some of the really serious um, and uh, distressing content that we sometimes cover as part of as part of the show. Mm. Um, and finally, we're joined by Lisa and Kathy, who are going to speak with us about the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, or APAN's Palestine Study Tours, which aim to increase awareness about the contemporary situation experienced by Palestinians through guided trips. And Lisa coordinates these study tours, and Kathy was a participant in 2012, and together they're going to reflect on the tours and their impact on increasing solidarity with Palestinians in the pursuit of liberation and peace. So... Um, um, a huge show coming up for you. Uh, you are listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Join us for the upcoming public forum, Sovereignty, Treaty and First Nations Justice, hosted by Green Left on Monday, February 20th at 6.30pm at the Drill Hall on 506 Elizabeth Street. With the upcoming referendum on Voice to Parliament, discussion about the best ways to fight for Shrevi, Sovereignty and First Nations justice have been growing. The massive Invasion Day protests of tens of thousands of people across the country is another sign of the growing movement for First Nations justice. Hear from two long-standing First Nations activists, Uncle Gary Murray and Lydia Forp, about their views on how to advance treaty, sovereignty and justice for First Nations people and their views on the current discussion about voice to Parliament. 6.30pm, Monday, February 20th at the Drill Hall on 506 Elizabeth Street. Green Left is a free CR supporter. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. These are the news headlines for Thursday the 16th of February. The federal government has this week announced changes to the pathways to permanent residency for asylum seekers, but have said they will not abolish temporary protection visas. In response, refugee advocates have pointed to more than a decade of racist refugee policy where the basic right of permanent protection has never been respected. 
The new scheme will impact 19,000 asylum seekers on temporary protection visas and safe haven enterprise visas, many of whom have been waiting for a permanent decision on their visa for 10 years. Refugee advocates are also calling for clarity on how the announcement impacts another 12,000 people who have not yet been granted protection under the failed former government's so-called fast-track scheme. The policy changes will mean those eligible can travel out of the country, apply for social security payments, and sponsor their relatives to come to Australia. In other news, a draft framework outlining the new health-based response to public drunkenness indicates that Victoria Police will still play a role in incident response. The government recently announced that public drunkenness will be decriminalised in November this year and that no new police arrest powers will be granted under the new legislation. This announcement came 31 years after the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody found that public drunkenness laws disproportionately affect First Nations people and recommended that they be abolished. Despite the recommendations for a move away from police involvement, the draft service framework indicates that police will act as, quote, secondary responders when primary health workers are not available. In response to the draft plan, the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service has called for guarantees that if police must play a role, a secondary responder role during the transition to a health-based response, the role must be temporary and strictly limited. And finally, in news headlines this week, Aotearoa has been hit with extreme weather and a 6.1 magnitude earthquake in recent days with flooding and landslides causing four deaths and widespread displacement. A state of emergency was declared on Tuesday after ex-tropical cyclone Gabrielle caused destruction of farmland, bridges and livestock and cut off entire towns across the east coast of the North Island. The community of Muruwai suffered devastating landslides and overall authorities estimate more than 10,000 people have been displaced so far. Aotearoa's climate change minister said that the severity of weather events are made worse by the fact that global temperatures have already increased by 1.1 degrees. And as for the earthquake, which hit late yesterday and was felt on both islands, there thankfully have been no reports of damage so far and no tsunami threat has been advised. These have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 16th of February, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Just a quick follow-up from that second headline. Uh, once again, encourage listeners to donate to the Dajawa Foundation. That's D-H-A-D-J-O-W-A dot com dot A-U, which has been established to provide strategic, coordinated, and culturally appropriate support for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families whose loved ones have died in custody and uh you know, was established by the family of Auntie Tanya Day, uh, which is how this push for the decriminalization of public drunkenness has come back into the public eye, despite it being recommended in the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. So please, please support grassroots-led Aboriginal-led um, movements and organizations that are working to combat Aboriginal deaths in custody and uh, the encroachment of police powers increasingly into people's lives. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. 
North Preston Life Saving Club is a new creative space, gallery and studios run for and by queer artists with disability. They're currently taking applications for studios and membership with priority given to disabled, queer and BIPOC communities. They'll be running workshops, holding community events and showcasing works by local and interstate artists. The North Preston Life Saving Club crew are seeking assistance in getting up and running and they need your help to get three-phase power to run equipment, including a kiln. To find out more and to show your support for independent creatives, please visit their Facebook page, North Preston Life Saving Club. North Preston Life Saving Club is a 3CR supporter. Wah carries the stories of our ancestors, forever watching over us and protecting us. Join me, Taldum Chogo Edwards, for Balamwa, a journey of stories, yarns and music about freedom and survival from 2pm to 3pm every Thursday afternoon on 3CR, 855 on your radio dial. As I walk alone on my dreaming track tonight I can hear the voices of my elders Their ancient sounds echo in my mind To the beat of clapstick and the dancing Published or Not has been on air for over 20 years. And in that time, it's been hosted by Jan Goldsmith. Well, just recently, over the last seven years, I've been joined by David McLean. We'll be talking about text, discussing words and ideas. With local authors, authors from interstate, or sometimes even from other countries. You can stream it live or find it on your favourite podcast app. So join us... Every Thursday at 11.30 on 3CR. I've been working on my rewrite, that's right. I'm going to change the ending. Going to throw away my title and toss it in the trash. And now we will go to an interview with Dr. Ruth Farthing, who is a policy worker who focuses on children's rights around technology and disadvantage. And she joins us today for an update to our December interview following the announcement that the e-safety commissioner has rejected the online safety codes that were drafted by tech companies. Thanks so much for joining us here today. Sure. Um, Thank you for having me back. I'm really delighted to be here. Thank you. And I know that when we spoke in December, we touched on how tech companies' online safety codes were really flawed and offer less protection to Australian children than in other countries. Could you briefly refresh our memory on why these codes were inadequate? Absolutely. Um, So these codes, as you mentioned, they were sort of sets of rules that were written by industry themselves as required by the Online Safety Act. And this meant that, you know, we were allowing tech companies to outline all the sorts of things that they were meant to be doing to keep kids safe online, um, whether it was things like making young people's social media accounts private by default or how to safely handle children's location data, right through to, you know, how should tech companies handle child sexual abuse material on, the plat- on their platforms. And the real problem was that these codes that were drafted by industry were just really weak. Um, they weren't as good as international best practice 
So, for example, in multiple places, they would have actually cemented lower safety standards for Australian children than, say, you know, British children. Um, nor in a lot of places were they even better than what was already just sort of happening. So in some places, they actually even tried to set the rules as less safe than normal sort of day-to-day practices by these tech companies. So they really just were, I don't know, pretty abysmal. Yeah, they sound pretty abysmal. And also from my understanding, in November last year, the tech companies, yeah, they submitted eight draft codes and they covered Mm -hmm. like different sections of the online industry, um, particularly for registration from the e-safety commissioner. So, And also these codes would fall under the... Australia's Online Safety Act. Um, and as you've mentioned, like they need to take adequate steps to reduce um, and the availability of harmful online content. And Commissioner Grant has rejected them, saying that they're not even robust community safeguards. And I know, of course, there's like there's complexity to a lot of this. But why do you believe that these drafts have been just like rejected um you've spoken about it a little bit before but would you mind maybe pinpointing a little bit yeah sure um i mean obviously i can't speak for the safety commissioner herself um honestly i think if you think about these codes there were really two criteria that the commissioner had to look at firstly it was did these codes these draft codes as you know was presented to her in november did these codes improve safety practices from where they already were so you know were they successful in driving up standards and then secondly did these codes reach international best practice did they give australian kids the best protections that we're seeing elsewhere in the world and the answer to to both of those questions unfortunately was no Um, and so i think it was it was the right decision it would have been a really tough and difficult decision but it was the right decision from the commissioner to say do you know what these online safety codes the drafts that she received were just not not strong enough and didn't adequately um, protect community standards yeah I, as you mentioned i know that's a really difficult decision to come to um, and i think from what we know or what we spoke about before it's the tech companies are basically writing the codes um, in benefit of themselves and we've submitted you they've submitted draft codes and then I think Commissioner Grant has encouraged these companies to resubmit draft codes with improved protection which also provides like a final opportunity to address areas of concern but I think I'm curious to know uh, what would you like to see in these improved protections and do you think it's even possible through these tech companies? Look, I think you've nailed it in the question there, and you're absolutely right. We're not out of the woods yet. Fundamentally, at Reset, we think it's just wrong that industry is allowed to to draft its own codes at all, especially when it comes to kids' safety. And, you know, the metaphor I always use is that this isn't like letting, you know, the phrase a fox loose in the hen house. This is like asking the fox to design the safety features of the hen house you know that we're just going to end up with a code that has like, I don't know, fox-sized tunnels or, or no wire <laughs> yeah. fences or whatever to, to stretch that metaphor to the nth degree. Um, and what we really want to see is, is a set of rules that are written that, as you described it, put children's best interests at heart, not commercial interests. And, and that's not a code that's tech companies pretending that their commercial best interests are children's best interests. We need a set of rules that really puts kids first 
and drives up safety standards. And, and that's what I'd like to see. Yeah, absolutely. I think at the essence of it, we know that companies operate for <laughs> profit and investors and mm-hmm. the holistic children's <laughs> needs and rights are probably um, something that kind of comes at the back end, which is disappointing. Um, but I guess mm. that is the way of it. Of it, And that's why we need really strict regulation. Um, I also know that the new codes, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong about any of this, they affect eight industry sections. So it includes social media, websites, search engines, app stores, internet providers, hosting services, and like email and messaging and gaming and dating services. So it's such a... Everyone. Everyone. Yeah. It is such a wide breadth of services. I, I, I guess which sectors do you see the most challenges with, um, either in general or for children in particular, and are there any sectors that are doing it better than others? Yeah, I, I think you're right. Um, and that was really part of the challenge for, for sure um, in drafting those online safety codes. And what we actually saw in response to that diversity, the process was actually that each of these eight different industry sectors developed its own code um, that was meant to be specific for, okay, well, how do you handle video chats, you know, and that would only be applicable to the um, the services that actually enabled live video feeds, for example. Um, and so I think that, you know, we saw eight different codes being proposed to try and cope with that diversity. Um, and in that diversity, we saw different industry players representing each of those sectors involved in drafting their own codes. There were certainly some that we found more concerning than others. I know that, like, like many people, we shared particular concerns about the codes for social media services and the codes for what's called relevant electronic services, which is um, gaming, um, messaging services, those sorts of things. Um, but I think that, that all of the codes you know, had a difficult job to do and just didn't get there. So it was, you know, it was difficult and complicated to try and get eight different codes that lined up. Um, but I don't think complexity on its own is, is an excuse. And um, what we just saw is that industry just didn't rise to the challenge. They just couldn't put kids ahead of profits at the end of the day. Right, yeah, and that is incredibly disappointing. Um, and knowing that you know, we're moving into, oh, we, I mean, we already are, gosh, I feel old <laughs> even talking about this. Um, but um, a lot of us, like, grew up in between um, the internet and remember that horrific dial-up sound. And I think now mm-hmm. there is, um, people are growing up with this and it is ingrained into them. And I think to expect kids to be, um, I don't know, to be rid of technology in order to protect themselves is not really... Um, I don't know, I don't think it's necessarily feasible, particularly for the climate that we're living in and how we are connecting with with peers and teachers and online schooling. Um, It's so unbelievably important that kids' rights are upheld um, and they're seen as people that are, you know, worthy of um, agency and not just, you know, young people um, that need protecting, like their voices also need to be heard, I think, too. Absolutely. Yeah, and they've got the right to access as well. Like all of these services, as you mentioned, they're, you know, both essential parts of day-to-day lives, whether it's schooling or health services or access to information. 
Um, but they also provide huge opportunities as well, like actually some of the benefits of the online world for young people and for the generations coming underneath us are going to be enormous. And I don't think it's practical to say, okay, well, you know, well, there's opportunities, but there's risks. Let's get all kids off the internet because it's not safe. Um, we don't want to harm young people that way either. All we need to do is make sure that the digital world is built in a way that's safe and protects children in the first instance and that puts children's rights first. Um, and that way, actually, young people can enjoy these huge benefits of the online world. And we can mit start to mitigate and reduce some of these really um, dangerous and hugely consequential risks that they face. Like, I think at the moment we've just got the balance all wrong. We've just sort of said, oh, look, the digital world is great. There you go, young people. Um, get out into this commercialised digital world and go forth. And you know what? If some of these companies violate your rights, whether it's your right to privacy or your right to safety, that's on you. You know, your parents should have read the terms and conditions. Um, but actually what we need to see is these companies held account for the way they build and design the digital world so that it's safer in the first instance. Yeah, absolutely. It starts like from the framework and the consultation to how the app is designed to every agreement. Like it's, if it's embedded into every system uh, of, at every part of the service, like it's really difficult to even try to escape that or put the onus on the user, <laughs> for sure. Um, I think <laughs> also... Uh, from what, from what I understand, if the industry actually doesn't, um, submit, you know, appropriate codes that meet the statutory requirements, the e-safety commissioner has the power under the Online Safety Act to, you know, implement new industry standards. Could you tell us, um, a little bit more about that if you can and maybe what the importance of the Online Safety Act is? Cause I, I believe it's, the, the introduction has been new. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, Look, from our perspective, what you've just described would be ideal. Um, I think the whole process of co-regulation or, you know, that's a technical term for allowing tech companies to write their own rules is just so rigged against children from the outset that it can't ever work. Um, you know, if tech companies were really going to drive up safety standards of their own accord, they already could. They've had, what, two or three decades to do this already, depending on which sector it is. Um, and so the reason we need legislation, the reason we need strong regulation is because industry too often just hasn't risen to that challenge. So what we want to see is the Online Safety Act, this really good piece of regulation that we've got that, that sort of let, sets out here are some ways to provide online safety to children and young people. We want to see that reinforced. We want to see it enhanced and improved. But what we've got, we already really want to see brought to life by a set of rules um, written by the e-safety regulator themselves. We just can't have industry drafting the online safety codes. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that the like the resubmission for the codes is coming up soon. Um, I guess I'm curious to know what the like the real guiding principles of like children's rights in technology are because um, maybe it's um, maybe sometimes it's a bit unclear. It's like children need to be safe and they need to be secure. But I guess at the end of the day, what does that really look like or mean in the online space? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, and it's something that actually the the human rights community has tried to answer. Um, so the Committee on the Rights of the Child um which is a sort of UN, the UN body of experts around children's rights, 
wrote a really comprehensive document just 18 months ago um, that that, not, that sort of documented children's rights in relation to the online environment. And it sort of pointed out that actually, you know, children have rights to protection, they have rights to access, they have rights to privacy, they have all sorts of different rights that, that we, you know, balance and we try and um, advance at every point. But at its core, it said that children's best interests have to come first. And so I think that's a really good guiding principle when you think about the digital world and the way it's designed and built. What would it look like if we put children's best interests first? Um, And that's what I'd like to see these codes really written as, like really flipped on their head and thinking, okay, if you put child safety first into the way we collect children's data, into the way we build profiles for young people on social media accounts or, you know, any of the other things we do. What what would our business practice look like? Um, and so that's what I'm hoping we see. The commissioner has given industry until the end of March to try again and see if they can draft some codes that kind of get a tick or a passing grade from the e-safety commissioner. Um, I'm really doubtful that they can, but I guess we just have to wait and see. And if the e-safety commissioner um, doesn't, approve the the next draft what we're going to see is that her office is going to start drafting the rules or an industry standard from from that point on um so what we've seen uh you know in the last week or so is very much a welcome brave first move from the e-safety commissioner to reject the first version of the code but absolutely watch this space to see what happens come you know, March and the rest of the year. Yeah, absolutely. We'll definitely put that link in the show notes. Unfortunately, that's kind of all we have time for today. But thank you so much for joining us here today. And we will look forward to hopefully a better um, update of codes where children's rights are actually put first. Fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much, Rose. Have a good day. Thank you. Bye. You've just heard from Dr. Riz Farthing about an update on the update, the update, the update to the December um, interview where now recently the e-safety commissioner has rejected the online safety codes that were drafted by tech companies. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings, cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. Three CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. Three CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers, and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at Three CR. To find out more, go to three cr.org.au and get in touch. back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Um, just before we jump into our next interview, I uh, want to remind listeners that we are smack bang in the middle of 3CR's subscriber drive. It's running from the 13th to the 19th of February, and uh, we are looking for people to sign up to support the station, uh, keep Radical Radio going, keep us doing what we love to do, being able to volunteer here and bring you radical news and views. Um, so please remember, 3CR relies on 
on the support of our listeners to actually keep going. We're a not-for-profit community radio license holder, and a strong subscriber base has been vital to our financial independence, and we're proudly community-owned and community-controlled. And that community includes you, everybody who subscribes to 3CR. So if you like this show, if you like any of the, uh, you know, 120 weekly shows that we have on this station, um, you can call the station on 94198377. That's 94198377 and press 1. And you can subscribe over the phone. Um, and that's between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. Or you can go to www.3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. So please uh, subscribe to 3CR to keep Radical Radio going. And we're now going to go to our next interview with Frederick Jensen, Advocacy Manager at Valid, the Victorian Advocacy League for Individuals with Disability. And Frederick joins us to discuss this week's Disability Royal Commission hearing number 32, which revisits service providers as well as serious concerns about disability accommodation raised earlier this year um, via the NDIS Quality and Safeguards uh, sorry, I've lost my place, via the NDIS Quality and Safeguard Commission's own motion inquiry into aspects of supported accommodation in the NDIS. Frederick, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. I think um, I'm really looking forward to this conversation because I think there's been a lot happening uh, in, the spa- in the sort of NDIS and Disability Royal Commission space over the past few months. So I'm hoping we can uh, yeah, jump right into it by talking about something that yeah, occurred a little earlier in the year to provide context for this week's Disability Royal Commission hearing. So in January, the NDIS Quality and Safeguards Commission published a long-awaited report on an own motion inquiry into the experiences of NDIS participants living in supported accommodation. And this revealed the appalling figure of over 7,000 serious incidents occurring in disability group homes over the past four years. So could you briefly take us through how the inquiry came about in the first place and perhaps, um, you know, guide us through wrapping our heads around this extraordinary scale of abuse and neglect? Yes, it is extraordinary um, and it is appalling. Um, and I think, um, you know, the abuse and neglect, you know, has always been happening. But I also think we are sort of looking at um, a slightly different landscape these days with um, NDIS and the free market space. Mm. Um, and I'm frankly not overly surprised about the 7,000 serious incidents because I've worked in the sector on the other side as well in service delivery. Um, And, um, yeah, I'm I'm obviously pleased that the report has come out, but I also know from the work that we do that that there would be um, incidents that are not even in that report because sometimes we come across quite serious cases uh, where people are afraid of, of even reporting mm. it. Um, and that goes both for um, India support coordinators and support workers who are worried about losing their jobs and, and victimization. And the same goes for families, actually, who are worried about reporting um, incidents sometimes um, because um, what we have seen in the work that we do is that some um, providers, they blackmail and they hold the person hostage and they say, well, if you don't show up, we'll withdraw service. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it, it is um, it is a calling. Um, and I also think some of the newer service providers 
landscape uh, of NDIS. Uh, they've gone in and uh, set up shop, and I'm doing that with quotation mm-hmm. mark um, because they haven't really known what they were getting into. Um, and um, it, it is it is complex, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do something about it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I certainly welcome that report. Yeah, um, definitely. And I mean, I think what what you're speaking to about this being, you know, horrific but not surprising, I think speaks really to the systemic nature of these issues where there is a profit incentive on the one side that doesn't actually line up with ethical and dignified um, treatment um, of people with disability and actually put their rights and their needs and their desires first. Um, and yeah, this... Uh, you know, having had some experience, some limited experience in the disability advocacy space, you know, it's so clear that there's such a massive power imbalance as well um, in terms of people actually raising these concerns uh, that, you know, it feels like there's a risk to people accessing services, even if they are, you know, provided either partially or, you know, in a terrible way. Um so given Valid's role in the disability advocacy space, I was hoping you could speak to the role of both self-advocacy, including Valid's peer action groups, and the kind of um, outside advocacy that in independent advocates provide in sounding the alarm to the kinds of systemic issues we've discussed, given that uh, you know people who are experiencing these issues might not be able to communicate them or their families might feel that there is a risk of service withdrawal or the providers themselves uh, or people that work at providers might feel there's a risk to their employment. I think, um, you know, that side, <clears throat> that sort of falls out of uh, the, the our realm of, of paid advocacy is incredibly important. Um, and I think uh, we need more social activism. And I think um, the peer action groups, they, um, they are really important. And I can only encourage um, families and other people to um, get together and create communities. And, and we're certainly happy to, to hear about them. So, so Valid is um, affiliated with um, a, a peer action group um, for families. And I know that that particular group has actually um, previously uh, spoken, uh, one of their members have spoken at the Royal Commission mm. um, at earlier hearings. Um, and I know it's a space that um, creates hope. Uh, for the families involved, um, and um, I would certainly like to see more more activism coming out of that. And we we are happy to hear about it. Um, and with regards to the self advocates, they you know they are really 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 important. And I think if um, that work that Valid already does could be rolled out further uh, to you know every group home, then there would be a, a lesser chance of people not speaking up um, because what the self-advocates do, they, they sort of embody that, you know, it's okay to, to speak out or speak up when they go into group homes and they speak to other people with um, disabilities. So it's, I think it's very encouraging uh, for those people in the group homes who may have never thought about speaking up. Um, mm. Yeah. So I think if that could be extended, um, that, that's vital work. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think, yeah, having, having, you know, peers kind of model that self advocacy, um, Mm -hmm. that people might struggle to initiate on their own because there is, as I mentioned before, this massive power imbalance is, is so crucial. Um, so turning to this week's uh, 32nd public hearing of the Disability Royal Commission, uh, this hearing is being held from the 13th to the 17th, and it's signaling the wrap-up of the examination of disability service providers. So given what we've discussed so far, can you tell us why this revisit of several service providers is so important, and in particular, yeah, the purpose of bringing specific providers uh, such as Afford, Life Without Barriers, Sunnyfield, and Urala back before the Commission at this stage? Look, I think uh, what this is about, in essence, um, is that there, there has been a, a, a lack of leadership. Um, and I spoke earlier when you uh, when, when we started the interview about those sort of uh, younger rogue providers who come into the space. But there's certainly also some of the bigger, older providers who are doing the wrong thing. So I think it's important that they are held accountable and that this is revisited and, and that they are, um, you know, actually also given the opportunity to, to speak again. Um, and I think just, just a note on this basis that, uh, that I wanted to say is that there are some providers who are doing, um, really good work. Um, and I think sometimes we also need to come into the space and we certainly try and do that as advocates to, to work with the providers mm. um, when, when problems are there. Um, but I think it's important that they are being made accountable. Um, yeah. And I think, um, I guess it's the sort of incentive structure for contracting providers and, um, you know, people developing these kinds of service delivery models that allows for people that might not be that familiar with, you know, the amount of training and funding and concerted level of oversight that it takes to successfully and ethically run, uh, you know, support um support services and so for those people that are modeling best practice this is also an opportunity to look at them and say you know what what's being done right and how is this how can this be translated across the sector because we've seen so much harm that's been caused on the other hand Um, so can you take us uh through some of the major concerns that that you raised on behalf of valid at uh at this hearing this week on monday Look, I certainly raised the, the lack of, of leadership and, and what happens if you've got, um, you know, um, house supervisors in houses who also have not got, um, backup, um, you know, from, from above to, to actually do the work. Um, it is, um, in a lot of those houses, it is, uh, equivalent to, to frontline work. Uh, such as, um, you know, domestic violence as well. So it's, it, it's really, it's really tough work. And, and if those, um, house supervisors and disability support workers are not, um, they don't have backup and, and lack of training, but also just continuously, um, you know, having somebody come in and, and help solve the problem. So that's what I've seen with some really good providers. They've got practice coaches, um, mm-hmm. floating around. And as soon as there is a problem, they'll step in and um, they will support staff and coach staff to to um, 
to solve the problem. Um, and I raised the problem of chemical restraint as well. Mm. And that is a massive violation that, that we see where we sedate people in our society in those group homes into being quiet when it's really, you know, the so-called, and I'm making quotation marks again, the so-called behavior of concern, as we call it, which um, I really don't like that, you know, um, description, you're really quieting down <clears throat> an expression of protest against mm. an environment that is stressful and abusive quite often. Um, so that that is a massive problem as well. Uh, in those group settings. Um, and often disability support workers and, and families too are not educated enough about um, the effect of this and sort of looking behind the behaviours. Um, so there are some safeguarding mechanisms in place with um, behavioural support practitioner and, and the Victorian Senior Practitioner's Office who oversee this space. Um, but there's stuff they don't know about either that comes across our desk. Um, as cases uh, where there are violations and and where chemical restraint is is used and it's not reported to the senior practitioner and it's not always in the behavioural support plan as it should be. Yeah, and I think this also yeah speaks then back to a sort of systemic, I guess, devaluing of the dignity and agency of people with disability um, because this you know, seeing these things happen in, in so many different, um, pro- across so many different providers really shows that, um, you know, the, the actual people and the lives that are at the center of this are being treated as a problem rather than people that are accessing a service that is supposed to support them to live um, their, their lives the best that they can. Um, so uh, just to wrap up, um, I'm wondering if you could tell us about some of the changes you're hoping that the hearing will provoke and where people can find out more about Valid's work and keep up to date with the Disability Royal Commission. Yeah. So, look, I, I would hope that it could um, provoke more activism. I would certainly also encourage, um, you know, um, people who are working for service providers uh, who are doing the wrong thing to um, contact um, with, uh, you know, Victorian advocacy organizations, including, uh, Valet. Um, and, um, yeah, you can find us on valet.org.au and go onto the contact us page. Um, and there's, um, and, you know, a phone number to our intake. And there's also, um, an email that you can contact, uh, us on, uh, intake at valet.org.au. Um, but if you're interested in um, the other work we do, um, and we've got um, a great community development team as well, um, uh, called the, the main number, which is 94164003. Awesome. And we'll put links to uh, how people can contact Valid in our show notes. But, Frederick, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. And that was Frederick Jensen, who is the Advocacy Manager at VALID, the Victorian Advocacy League for Individuals with Disability, who joined us to talk about this week's Disability Royal Commission hearing, revisiting service providers, as well as some serious concerns about disability accommodation that were raised earlier in the year via the NDIS Quality and Safeguards Commission's own motion inquiry into aspects of supported accommodation in the NDIS. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. 
Did you know that 3CR received its community radio licence in 1976? Our application was successful because of our diverse and engaged community membership. Subscribers are at the heart of our station and we really need you to be active and paid up in 2023. Become a 3CR subscriber today. Call 03-9419-8377 or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Alright! Saving Club is a new creative space, gallery and studios run for and by queer artists with disability. They're currently taking applications for studios and membership with priority given to disabled, queer and BIPOC communities. They'll be running workshops, holding community events and showcasing works by local and interstate artists. The North Preston Life Saving Club crew are seeking assistance in getting up and running and they need your help to get three-phase power to run equipment, including a kiln. To find out more and to show your support for independent creatives, please visit their Facebook page, North Preston Life Saving Club. North Preston Life Saving Club is a 3CR supporter. Next up, we're going to be hearing from Diego Vasquez, a.k.a. Sleepy Maine, who is a visual artist and musician from Melbourne, Nam, and began making music in 2016. Diego's love for writing, poetry, music, video games and friends runs deep. Visual art has always been a part of Diego's practice and stems from an early obsession with cartoons. This visual card culture feeds directly into his music. Today we will be chatting music, creative process, how he made a concept album and of course, all things love. Good morning Diego, how are you doing? Hi. Hi, so let's get into it. Um, okay, sure thing. <laughs> so you were thinking about making music for a long time before you began. What made you take the leap to actually start creating your own music? Was there like any particular context that informed that decision? Um, well, I guess I used to write music a lot in my head or in my bedroom. And um, I don't know, for years, I used to, I guess, I used to just watch friends of mine do the thing that I really wanted to be doing and watch them perform and watch people go crazy over their shows. And I was just like, I want to be doing that thing. I don't know, and it's just like, how long is long enough? You know, how long? How long are you going to wait? I guess. And, um, <laughs> um, yeah, my friend, uh, my friend Lali, who performs under Lali's, um just got back from some tour, and we were at some party one night, and they were like, "Oh, what have you been up to?" I said, oh, "I don't know. I guess I've been writing these like rap songs." Um, yeah, you know, but whatever. And they were just like, "Oh, do you want to go?" record them right now. Do you want to like leave this party and like go record them right now? And so we just like <laughs> left the party at like midnight, whatever time it was, and just went back to their house and just made the first few songs they ever wrote. Yeah. And I that was it. It's really yeah. cool that sometimes your friends can give you the bravery to just do the thing that you've wanted to do. Absolutely. Um, so do you think that like your history and your background has influenced the art you make? Could you speak more to that history and the impact it's had on you as an artist? Sure. Um, I guess if we're talking visual art, it's just absolutely um, 
just cartoons and video games and uh yeah i don't know i just uh be glued to the tv as a kid um and so a lot of the shit that i uh paint or draw or just cute little happy cartoons ripped straight from the 90s i guess um and in terms of music i guess i don't know yeah just everybody's music is about their upbringing in history you know unless you're um Unless you're Drake, in which case you pretend your upbringing was a lot harder than it was. But everybody else, you know, the rest of us smuck, you know, are out here writing songs about our lives. And I don't know, my last album, there was a, a song called Slippery, which is like a seven, maybe seven minute autobiographical song where I outline all the stuff that has happened in my life. And it's very good. And if you're listening to this, you should go listen to that afterwards. Well, I haven't heard that yet, so I'm excited to learn a bit more about your <laughs> life story. Um, sure. Yeah, and I think it's cool that sometimes the most mundane things that we do in childhood can end up becoming like central to our creative practices. Absolutely. Uh, so next we're going to move on to the theme of your upcoming concept album, I think it's safe to say, based on your single, there's a little spiel about your upcoming album at the end. It is apparently going to be the best love album in Nam. Could you tell me more about the thinking or the feelings behind this album? Yeah, I don't know. I just wanted to. Um, I just wanted to make something really good. You know, I just wanted to make something that felt important and for people. To just, I don't know, make something that people could relate to and, uh, just feel it. Like, yeah, I thought of writing a love album. This is a, gonna be a, a 15 song concept love album. It's gonna have a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's got a story to tell. Um, one that we probably all felt a lot and will feel quite palpable. Uh, and, yeah, I don't know. It's just the most ambitious thing I've ever tried to do, and I'm putting a lot of work and care into it to make it as potent as possible. Um, 15 songs, all thriller, no filler. Just, uh, yeah, I don't know. You know, everybody's had their heart broken. Everybody's fallen in love. Uh, we all yearn constantly as humans to exist in a constant cycle of love and grief, and this album aims to address it all. It's true. Love truly is the timeless theme. And wow, 15 songs. I am excited to hear what you're bringing to our ears. Um, so Likewise. next up, you know, that's a lot of work that goes into something like that. How do you get up in the morning and find the motivation to be creative? And what approach have you taken with this particular album? Do you work solo or do you have collaborators? Um... I guess to answer the first question, a lot of the time I don't, you know, it's quite, it can be quite hard to, to focus. What else is a clean room? Clean your room. If you're out there and you're listening and you can't write your bloody little songs, your stupid little songs, you just clean your room. It'll make it easier. Just trust me, it will. Um, in terms of this album, what am I doing? I don't know. I try to write a song a week. I try to just get in there, and even if it's bright and sunny outside, I'll, I'll uh, close the blinds and just lock myself in and, you know, just just sit the laptop in front of me and just try to write the, the best song possible. 
I collaborate on every project I make with um, a different close friend of mine, a different producer who produces the entire thing. The first thing I ever made was an album called The Devil Called The Devil Wears Starter with uh, Lalich um, and, and my mum. And then there was a mixtape called Life is a Truly Terrible Thing produced by my friend Rory, who is now playing in a cool, very cool band called Tommy and Roy, who you should listen to. Um, and the last two things, including this one, are made by my friend Simo, who is a very... Uh, a very master, master producer and, uh, released an album late last year called Please Keep This Between Me and You. And you should absolutely listen to it. And I'm also on a song there on that album. I'm on a song. Oh, that amazing. Yeah, That's I right. think that really speaks to the importance of um, having other people around you uh, when yeah. you're creating and it can really help you um, progress on your journey. So yeah. speaking of your journey again, if you could mm-hmm. speak to your younger self, what would mm. you say? And do you have any advice for up-and-coming artists out there who might be listening this morning? Uh, yeah, I guess they're the same. Yeah, the answer would probably be the same thing. Um, but it's just do it sooner, bro. Just do it, you know. I feel like we spend so many, I don't know, just so much of our lives waiting for people to hand us our dreams on a silver platter or this is never going to happen you just have to you just have to do it nobody nobody's going to give a shit about you accomplishing your dreams except for you you've got to do it and shove it down people's throats and make them regret not caring i guess um just yeah just do it and i don't know and try to do it confidently when you begin doing it and you're not going to at the start but you'll get there and don't think that you won't, and just because you're scared and you can't look people in the eyes when you're performing and stuff doesn't mean that you won't be able to eventually, and I don't know, eventually you'll be able to rock the Casbah and just play dope shows and release cool music, and yeah, that's, yeah. Diego, thank you for serving that candid advice. Like, what I'm getting from that is stop hating yourself, don't wait around, just <laughs> get right. to it, you know? You can, yeah, you can find, find out how to do it along the way. Yeah, um, and absolutely. no one really knows, do they? Like, we're all just Nobody. pretending. <laughs> we all pretend. So get out there, there and start making what you love. Um, yeah. Next up, where can we listen to your music? And where will we be able to find your upcoming album, The Bright Side of Pain, when it drops later this year? Uh, my music is on all the, all the places that you go to music. Um, Spotify is what I listen to it on. But that's just me. Um, you can also find it on Apple Music, I think is the other one, or Jay-Z's one, title. You know, it's all there. Um, uh, I just released a music video. I need to talk about that. Uh, I released a music video called Slip Season, and it's very uh, overtly hip-hop and fun, and you can find that one on YouTube and listen to it on Spotify, or you can follow me on Instagram, and I will tell you, I will I will personally tell you where to find all my music once as I release it. And my Instagram handle is at Marilyn.handsome, and that is Marilyn spelled incorrectly because I'm an idiot, and it's M-A-R-Y-L-I-N. <laughs> Amazing. Okay. Yeah. No one's going to miss that. We also have it linked in our <laughs> podcast, so you'll be able to follow along. 
incredible. Um, I've seen the video. It is really a bit of a throwback to that 90s, noughties, hip-hop vibe, and, yeah, mm-hmm. I loved it. A bit of fun, isn't it? Yeah. It's a bit of fun. So, Diego, thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's been lovely to chat, and good luck. No worries. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. We just heard from Diego Vasquez, a.k.a. Slippy Main, a visual artist and musician from Melbourne Nam who began making music in 2016. Diego's love for writing, poetry, music, video games and friends runs deep. Visual art has always been a part of Diego's practice and stems from an early obsession with cartoons. Today we chatted about music, the creative process, his upcoming concept album and, of course, the theme of all of this, love. Did you know that 3CR received its community radio license in 1976? Our application was successful because of our diverse and engaged community membership. Subscribers are at the heart of our station, and we really need you to be active and paid up in 2023. Become a 3CR subscriber today. Call 039419 8377 or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. believe in the right to protest? Are you concerned about climate change and the environment? Then come and make your voice heard at a mass meeting on the right to organise for climate and the environment. Join others at 6.30pm on Tuesday, March 7th at 535 Elizabeth Street, Central Melbourne, to discuss and then vote on practical ways to support climate action and the environment and to defend the right to protest. Speakers include proud Gunai Kurnai woman Marjorie Thorpe, United Workers Union's Godfrey Mose, and Environment Justice Australia lawyer Natalie Hogan, and will be facilitated by Tuffy Morwitzer, campaigner for the Goongarra Environment Centre. Come participate in some direct democracy for a better world. Your voice matters. RSVP is essential. Go to gecko.org.au forward slash calendar to book your ticket. This event is wheelchair accessible and Auslan interpreted. A 3CR supporter. Wah carries the stories of our ancestors, forever watching over us and protecting us. Join me, Taldem Chogo Edwards, for Balamwa. A journey of stories, yarns and music about freedom and survival from 2pm to 3pm every Thursday afternoon on 3CR, 855 on your radio dial. As I walk alone on my dreaming track tonight I can hear the voices of my elders Their ancient sound Echo in my mind To the beat of Clapstick and the dancing
and we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we are joined by Lisa and Kathy, who are going to speak with us about the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, or APAN's Palestine Study Tours, which aim to increase awareness about the contemporary situation experienced by Palestinians through guided trips. Lisa is an aid worker with 30 years' experience in the Middle East, largely working with Palestinian refugees in the region. And Kathy is a longtime advocate and supporter of Palestinian rights and was a radio producer and local government counselor in New South Wales in 2012 when she visited Palestine. Good morning, Lisa and Kathy. Morning. Hi. Hi, Sue. Uh, so maybe we can start off, Lisa, uh, if you could let us know a little bit about how the APAN Palestine Study Tours began and a bit of the motivation behind uh, starting these tours. Well, these tours began uh, when I worked uh, back in the aid sector. I would take delegations of our members and donors to visit our aid projects with Palestine refugees in Lebanon and Palestine. And um, since 2010, I've taken some 18 or, or more delegations of people, ranging from uh, trade unions to parliamentarians to medical professionals, journalists, and just people that are interested in want to learn more about the issues. So the motivation was uh, really there was just increasing interest, particularly following the uh, Operation Cast Lead, the 2008-9 Israeli invasion of Gaza. Mm. And so... There was a lot of interest revolving at the time, and and we decided to take delegations to see what's happening on the ground. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a, uh, as we'll talk about later uh, in the conversation, it's it's such an important way to sort of cut through a lot of the uh, misinformation and misrepresentation of the situation on the ground. Uh, Kathy, can you tell us a bit about your experience going on this uh, trip and how it's shaped your approach to Palestine solidarity ongoing? Yeah, sure, Priya. Look, it was um, quite an eye-opener, really. It was a really comprehensive trip. We met a range of people, starting with refugees in a camp in Lebanon. We'd been there for over, you know, well, some of them since 1948, hoping to return to their homes and their villages and their farms. And they were living in very dire situations in a very sort of small area of land, some 20,000 people in like two square kilometres. Um, we moved on, we met unionists, we met farmers on the ground in the West Bank, we met organisations, human rights, orgs, NGOs, and we just experienced the occupation in the West Bank face-to-face. You know, There was no sort of gilded um, narrative about what's going on there, and to see it to see the daily grind and the persecution of Palestinians every single day. And in recent times, as we know, it's become far, far more violent with more deaths this year than they've had, you know, in the last sort of 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really changed my understanding of, you know, the reality and the harshness of what was going on. It was ongoing, I think we call it colonisation now, um, land theft, incrementally every day and you know a completely domination a complete domination of a population mm. later on i managed to go to one of the prisons in um the west bank which was also an uh, you know a shocking experience it was like being in a kangaroo court except there were like 12 of them running simultaneously and um 
I could tell you more about that later if you're interested. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but it, it does sound, um, you know, like a real kind of eye-opener as well because obviously, you know, we're in a settler colonial state here in so-called Australia and uh, the nature of occupation, you know, looks a little different here. Um, it's almost like a, a lot of things kind of get, um, ha- have been so normalized that uh, it, it takes, you know, sometimes some effort to, to raise people's concerns about how brutal and ongoing the violence is here. Um, but the form that that takes, obviously, um, when is the targeting, uh, targeting of Palestinians, um, you know, on, on their own land uh, is is quite quite different and it's um i I guess what i'm hearing is that it's been important to to have an eye-opener um being there and and seeing these impacts firsthand so lisa i was wondering if you could reflect on the impact that these tours have had so far both in the solidarity and advocacy spaces more broadly um given your role in in coordinating them over the years and particularly their significance for providing you know this different lens through which to understand uh, the palestinian liberation struggle and i'm wondering if uh, the tours can be usefully contrasted with things like press junkets run by the Israeli lobby, which significantly influence the way that Palestine is covered in Australian media. And uh, Kathy, also feel free, feel free to chime in. I think for it's difficult to comprehend the situation uh, there without seeing it firsthand on the ground. Um, for many of the Palestinian communities that we meet, their, their simple ask is really to take their stories out to the world because they feel so unheard. And, and once you've been, for many, it's uh, hard to unsee the injustices that um, they've experienced in their, in their uh, visit there. And so many return to become active on the issues, even if it's just writing letters to the editor or to their local MP, they come back active um, and angry. So it's, uh, the impact is, has been quite wide, wide-ranging, as Cathy can probably attest to as well. Oh, absolutely. And I think the issue is too that um, because the media is so biased, as you alluded to, Priya, um, trying to get a different narrative out to actually explain what's going on to share this horror that so many people are experiencing is really, really hard. And Australia, of course, is one of the worst countries in the world in terms of um, its lack of support and lack of justice or support for human rights for Palestinians. I mean, we understand, you know, human rights as Ukrainians are now being discussed and being supported by Australia and we're taking in tens of thousands of refugees, which is great. But... um, what happens to the Palestinians? Why have they been left in this situation? Which is, you know, breaches every international law we know. Um, and Australia votes always in the way that the US votes, which is against a lot of the key UN resolutions, you know, condemning the human rights abuses that are, that are occurring. So we have a big job to do here in Australia, and I think these tours really, really help in, in bringing people to the point where they become strong advocates for change. You know, because our government is, is severely lacking in its approach. 
Yeah, definitely. And um, I think uh, bringing up the, the sort of response to Ukraine is, is a really kind of good example because it also, um, you know, accepting uh, refugees as well from a, a particular place while also having people languish in offshore detention um, also, also shows this kind of racialized separation of, you know, the value of human life and uh, how willing the government, uh, you know, liberal and labor governments have been to... Uh, you know, to listen to people that are experiencing these uh, conditions of, uh, you know, crisis, occupation, um, violence. And, um, yeah, I, I think uh, I also wanted to name the fact that participation in these trips does rely on the relative freedom of movement that's experienced by non-Palestinians to actually navigate these borders as part of acting in solidarity. So I was wondering if you could both speak to that dimension as well. Lisa, did you want to go first? Okay, it's... I think it's important that um, to visit Palestinian-led initiatives on the ground, and uh, my delegations uh, focus entirely on that. Uh, all all I am is just the liaison to to get people uh, there and uh, uh, into uh, the these Palestinian communities and organisations and groups to hear from them firsthand what's what's going on. It's not for me to tell people what's happening on the ground mm. there, but you've actually really got to get there and see it. And um, uh, so it is important to that we have that avenue to do that. I think, because it's yeah. very and difficult, I think, increasingly difficult for Palestinians to do. Mm. Exactly. And I even think like getting into Jerusalem, like so many Palestinians in the West Bank can't even get into Jerusalem mm. and they're like 15 minutes away. Uh, they can't get a pass. Um, let alone getting into Gaza, and we were really fortunate to be able to spend a couple of days there, a few days there. Um, I think these days it would be completely impossible to hear from the Gazans. No Gaza, Gazan can get out, really, um, into the West Bank. They can't travel freely anywhere into Egypt. Um, you know, it's the largest open-air prison in the world, as, as it's been described, and it's certainly true, in a very sad and you know, poverty-stricken place due to the siege that's gone on so long. But yes, we could travel around, we could go into Israel proper or, you know, Palestine 48, as it's known. Um, most Palestinians can't go to the sea. They can mm. even see it from the hills up in Ramallah and around there, but they can't get to the ocean because of the incredible restrictions on movement and the multiple, multiple, you know, blocks to them travelling anywhere, even between towns and villages within the West Bank. Mm. But people just can't understand this. It doesn't make sense to people. And because of the you know, image that the Israeli government presents of it being you know, this very liberal and you know, great sort of rainbow-loving community, you can't believe that this is happening um, right next door and literally within a few kilometres. So this, yeah. is, this is the reality of it, and this is... Yeah, why we were very privileged to be able to move around the way we did, and it only highlighted how restricted and oppressed you know Palestinians are in their own land. Mm. Yeah, and I, yeah, what, what I'm understanding from that is also you know this the um, being able to draw on you know your own kind of relative privilege and being able to move around these areas to then increase solidarity, increase support and increase awareness um, for, for folks who uh, might not have as clear an understanding of, of what's going on and what the situation is there. Um, so I think 
maybe t- to wrap up, I was wondering if, if either of you wanted to reflect um, on anything any further about these trips. If there is anything else that you wanted to share before um, before I ask Lisa where people can find out more and register for the next tour. I just wanted to say one thing, which was really that the Palestinian people that I met and have met over the years, because I've been back a couple of times, have been the most wonderful and welcoming and, you know, absolutely staunch people that I've ever met. Um, Extraordinary. And I do advise people, you know, recommend go there, meet them if you can, if you can get in. Um, If the Israeli government, you know, doesn't close down West Bank completely. Go and meet them and offer the solidarity and come back and work hard to try and see change. Yeah. Mm. And Lisa? Uh, I'd probably echo um, uh, uh, what Cathy has said. There's, there's nothing but uh, meeting the, in communities there. There's nothing but a, a warm, lovely cup of hot mint tea and the warmest of welcomes and their stories and it's such a privilege to be able to be there with them to hear their stories and then uh, bring that back uh, you know out to the world so that they're heard Um, so I just yeah I love doing it and and I hope that I can continue in, in the future yeah, absolutely. And and Lisa, where can people find out more about the the tours and uh, and potentially sign up or register their interest? Uh, everything will be on the APAN website. Um, that's APAN A P A N dot org dot au. Fantastic. And we'll have links to that in our show notes. Thank you so much for uh, both of you for joining us and uh, speaking, I think, to the importance of really uh, putting in the effort to cultivate international solidarity. I think this has been um, a really important discussion. Thanks so much. Thank you, Priya. And that was Lisa and Kathy who spoke with us about the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, or APAN's Palestine Study Tours, which aim to increase awareness about the contemporary situation experienced by Palestinians through guided trips. And together they reflected on the tours and their impact of uh, on increasing solidarity with Palestinians in the pursuit of liberation and peace. And we'll have further information about APAN's Palestine Study Tours in our show notes, as well as um, information about APAN in general. Uh, you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. needs members to survive. By becoming a subscriber, you're helping us to remain fiercely independent and free of commercials and corporate influence. Are you a paid-up subscriber? It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organisation, and $300 solidarity. Great value for 24-7 community-owned and community-controlled media. Please become a subscriber member today. Call the station on 03-9419-8377 or sign up online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. All right. 
North Preston Life Saving Club is a new creative space, gallery and studios run for and by queer artists with disability. They're currently taking applications for studios and memberships with priority given to disabled, queer and BIPOC communities. They'll be running workshops, holding community events and showcasing works by local and interstate artists. The North Preston Life Saving Club crew are seeking assistance in getting up and running and they need your help to get three-phase power to run equipment, including a kiln. To find out more and to show your support for independent creatives, please visit their Facebook page, North Preston Life Saving Club. North Preston Life Saving Club is a 3CR supporter. And next up, we're going to go to Slippy Main's new track, Slip Season. It is the single that just dropped, along with a music video, and I will give just a little language warning for this one. Enjoy. Slip, 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 go slippy. 
We just heard uh, Slip Season, the new single that just dropped by Slippy Main. Yeah, that was incredible. And um, for those of you who didn't catch Leela's interview with Slippy Main, I highly encourage you to listen back to our podcast on 3cr.org.au forward slash Thursday dash breakfast. It'll be up later today. And if you like the work that we do, if you love 3CR, you should head to 3cr.org.au to subscribe or to renew your subscription because we are currently in the middle of 3CR's subscriber drive. That's right, from the 13th to the 19th of February. We are reminding you, we are asking you, Please support Radical Radio to keep our station going and to keep us making all these wonderful programs for you all. We're going to head into another track now. This one is Beat the Odds by Inkaby, a.k.a. son of Flunt MC.
And that was Beat the Odds by Inkaby, which we've been looking forward to playing for a while. So good. Oh, my God. That, all that talent in such a small, amazing package. Amazing. Um, so let's go back over what we had on the show today. Yeah, so we had a great show today. We started off with Dr. Riz Farthing, who is a policy worker who focuses on children's rights around technology and disadvantage. She is the director of children's policy at Reset Tech, has worked in international think tanks and held academic posts at Oxford University and RMIT. She joined us today for an update to our December interview following the announcement that the e-safety commissioner has rejected the online safety codes that were drafted by tech companies. After that, we were joined by Frederick Jensen, Advocacy Manager at VALID, the Victorian Advocacy League for Individuals with Disability, who joined us to discuss this week's Disability Royal Commission hearing number 32, revisiting service providers, as well as serious concerns about disability accommodation that were raised earlier this year in the NDIS Quality and Safeguards Commission's own motion inquiry into aspects of supported accommodation in the NDIS. And then we heard from Diego Vasquez, a.k.a. Slippy Maine, who is a visual artist and musician from Melbourne, Nam, who began making music in 2016. Diego's love for writing, poetry, music, video games and friends runs deep. Today, he joined us to chat about music, creative process, how he made a concept album and, of course, all things love. Incredible. And finally, we were joined by Lisa and Kathy, who spoke with us about the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network's Palestine Study Tours, which aim to increase awareness about the contemporary situation experienced by Palestinians through guided trips. Lisa coordinates these study tours and is an aid worker with 30 years' experience in the Middle East and um, largely working with Palestinian refugees in the region. And Kathy's a longtime advocate and supporter of Palestinian rights and was a radio producer and local government counselor in New South Wales in 2012 when she visited Palestine as part of the tours. And today, together they reflected on the tours and the impact of these uh, trips on increasing solidarity with Palestinians in the pursuit of liberation and peace. And we'll have more information um, about how to find out about the tours, register your interest, as well as about everything else we covered in the show in our show notes. Uh, we'll catch you next week.